Hello and welcome to episode two of the Total Experience podcast from Tribal London, a podcast about brand experience, what it is, how it works and how we can do it better. Each episode will be bringing you enticing, fresh and thought-provoking perspectives as we go deep on a new and different aspect of brand experience. My name is Richard Cable and I'm head of content here at Tribal. Our aim is always to take the good conversations we have about brand experience and share them with a much wider audience. So do feel free to get involved, let us know how we're doing and the sort of things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. This episode, did you know there's such a thing as disease branding? No, neither did I. So here's the deal. Diseases are bad and in less enlightened times, people somewhat understandably used insensitive and unflattering terms to describe diseases, such as lockjaw for tetanus, the shakes for Parkinson's disease, and, in England at least, the French pox for syphilis. Less forgivably, the disease was frequently conflated with the person and became a means of stigmatising and marginalising anyone who deviated from what was considered normal. To give you an idea of the lack of empathy occasioning some conditions, an entire cottage industry grew up during the 19th century to exploit sufferers. The so-called freak shows, veritable festivals of staggering prejudice, became huge draws on both sides of the Atlantic. In the US, the celebrated ringmaster P.T. Barnum created the American Museum, an attraction that drew nearly half a million visits a year to see, amongst other things, the people he marketed as freaks, including conjoined twins, bearded ladies, the very, very tall and the very, very short, and those suffering from conditions like microcephaly, albinism, and polymelia, which is more than the typical number of limbs. P.T. Barnum's equivalent in the UK was Tom Norman, the notorious showman and discoverer, in inverted commas, of John Merrick, the so-called elephant man who suffered from a horrifically disfiguring condition called Proteus syndrome. But even before the end of John Merrick's career, the public's taste for freak shows was in sharp decline, and yet the victim-blaming tendency and disease naming continued unabated for another hundred years or so give you a couple of examples. At the one end of the spectrum you have terms like incontinence, namely the implied absence of continence or self-restraint, still in use today. At the other end of the spectrum you have GRID, or gay-related immunodeficiency, a shockingly misguided name coined in 1981. The stigma that came readily packed into the name GRID did a huge amount of damage. At the time, the same-sex relationships were still being aggressively marginalised, so people actively concealed their condition and chose not to seek treatment, which in turn contributed enormously to the spread of the disease around the globe. By calling it gay-related, it also allowed people outside that community to assume, incorrectly, that they weren't at risk. Not for nothing was a disease renamed Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, a year later in 1982, but it was too little too late. The damage was already done, and it took decades of public education to undo. It's almost certainly one of the reasons HIV-AIDS remains a significant global health risk to this day. So, consciously branding or rebranding a disease can play an important role in eliminating the stigma surrounding it, which helps more patients recognise and understand what it is, and may even encourage them to seek treatment. Branding can also help raise awareness of little-known or rare conditions. Pharma companies have typically led the charge in disease branding, and these days will often run a disease awareness campaign ahead of the launch of a new therapy. A cynic might say that this is simply a way of preparing a market to launch the therapy into. While there may be some truth in this, new therapies also only become possible with advances in the science and understanding of the disease, and it's a legitimate exercise, even a responsibility, to communicate that to physicians and patients alike. Okay, so what about a disease that's new to science? When a disease emerges, there are typically two names associated with it. The first is the pathogen, for example, the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, and the second is the disease it causes, for example, AIDS. Viruses are named by the International Committee of Taxonomy of Viruses, or the ICTV. Their audience is scientists, and the names are designed to describe the virus's genetic structure, the better to facilitate the development of tests, vaccines, and treatments. Diseases are named by the WHO, or WHO, the World Health Organization, 
and recorded in the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD. Their audience includes large numbers of non-scientists, politicians, civil servants, agencies, NGOs and potentially the public. So the name is designed for comprehension and communication in most of the planet's 7,111 languages, which is apparently as difficult as it sounds. In 2015, WHO published new guidance aimed at eliminating any possibility of the sort of stigma, discrimination or fear-mongering that had blighted disease naming in the past. Names getting the thumbs up included responsible things like symptoms, so respiratory, neurological, hemorrhagic, the affected population, for example the juvenile, paediatric or maternal, the epidemiology, so progressive, transient or contagious, or the year the disease was first reported. So names getting the thumbs down included things like geographical locations, so Spanish flu, Japanese encephalitis, or Trump's Chinese virus. The names of animals or food, so bird flu, monkeypox, shellfish poisoning, or terms that might induce fears, such as unknown, fatal, or epidemic. As the naming of swine flu demonstrated, if the wrong name sticks, it has the power to offend entire nations, devastate industries, and cause diplomatic crises. Nearly 17 million people die from infectious diseases every year, and according to WHO, 30 novel diseases have emerged in the last 20 years alone. One of the ways that these new diseases emerge is zoonosis, transmission from animal species to human beings. One such disease is caused by a virus that the ICTV chose to call Severe Acute Respiratory Coronavirus 2, shortened to SARS-CoV-2. There was an understandable reluctance at WHO, in light of their new guidance, to give the disease a name that had anything to do with SARS. In 2003, an outbreak of SARS had infected 8,000 people and spread to 26 countries. Nobody wanted to cause a panic, so instead, they branded it with a different name. In announcing the name, World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said, Having a name matters to prevent the use of other names that can be inaccurate or stigmatizing. It also gives us a standard format to use for any future coronavirus outbreaks. The name of the new disease, he explained, was a contraction of coronavirus disease, created by taking the first letters from each word to form a new word, COVID, and then adding the year of its discovery, 2019. And that is how COVID-19 entered the lexicon. It seems incredible that the name of the disease wasn't decided until early February, when it was already well on its way to global pandemic status. And even more incredible that one of its many stigmatising nicknames like Wuhan flu or seafood market pneumonia hadn't already stuck in the meantime. Instead, it seems that coronavirus, the generic name for the family of viruses rather than this specific variant, had already won the day and become the public and media's name of choice. Which you might have thought would be bad news for a particular beer brand that has the misfortune to share a name with the virus. After all, the WHO guidance doesn't say anything about brand names, but it seems even the panic-buying public is smart enough to distinguish between a name that suggests where a disease originated and a name that is coincidentally the same as another one. Far from plummeting, Constellation Brands, which imports Corona beer to the US, says sales of Corona for February were up 5%. That's it for this episode of the Total Experience podcast from Tribal London. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget that you can subscribe for more and feel free to recommend, share, quote and contribute to it. Episode 3 will be along shortly. I've been Richard Cable. Until then, thanks for listening, stay home and stay safe.